You're all very welcome to the latest in our EY Economic series here, where we'll be talking about the latest edition of the EY Economic Eye, which covers the winter of 2021. And uh, it's a forecast to look ahead. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Neil Gibson, who is EY Ireland Chief Economist. Neil, um, I suppose it's a bit like a football match where if we said to ourselves, uh, this time last year, if we thought we could be in this position, we would have taken it. Yes, absolutely, Richard. It's um, been a pleasant surprise that almost all of the headline data indicators that we've seen over the last 20 months actually have come in just a little bit ahead of where we might have expected them to be. And I think that's reflects a combination of a fairly swift and significant policy response by governments in the UK and, and in Ireland, but also a resilience and agility in, in our businesses and that has been a hugely present, pleasant and inspiring surprise in a way in moving to new ways of working, new ways of selling, new ways of training and hiring. It's been a remarkable sort of test case in how quickly you can adapt now, we have to be careful when we say it's been better than expected because, of course, we deal in the macro and for individuals in particular sectors or firms, it has been incredibly challenging. So we have to have a little bit of sensitivity when we say that the platform is a little bit more sturdy or robust or we've come through this storm a little bit better to use a topical reference than we might have imagined to be the case. But it's not just a GDP data or jobs data or tax data when you take the whole picture of information we're standing in a better position as 2021 comes to an end than the economics forecasting profession thought and indeed most policymakers thought as well so that's a little bit of good news at a tough time and when you mention you know individuals businesses sectors that have suffered how great is the challenge now of this idea of of a two speed economy and that certain sectors that have suffered most you know will take longer to recover how big a threat is that to overall economic growth uh, it is a threat um, in the sense that those particular areas of damage can be hugely important, even if they don't appear as significant contributors to maybe overall, for example, GDP or macroeconomic growth. But they can be very big employers or very important employers of a particular in a particular location. So one of the challenges now that it presents is for policymakers to fine tune that support much more narrowly it's almost easier to provide general support pup schemes furlough schemes once you start saying well, we're going to narrow it and we're going to have conditions on the support that's a much tougher thing to do but that's what's going to be required i suppose one of the encouraging things we've seen is when it's safe to do so people have shown a real desire to get back to our sport to our culture leisure industries to shopping to things that we maybe had a question mark over how difficult the recovery would be. The encouraging feature is, I think we all recognise how important they are to our societies and to our own sense of well-being. So the desire and the wealth will be there to support them. It's just a case of continually trying to find a way to bridge what is unfortunately a sort of ever-extending gap that we're having to face. But I think we can look back at the last period and say, a lot of those businesses and hopefully the important message for them as they've seen customers come back through the door is that they are a very valued business and though it's tough now that the evidence is the customer demand will be there but policy is going to have to do a little bit more helping along the way as we deal with this latest variant and the challenges thereof in this document neil you're revising upward 
uh, growth forecast for the Republic of Ireland, for Northern Ireland. And there's a lot of very good stuff there vis-a-vis a solid platform for growth. There's a lot to be uh, quite pleased about, I suppose. But the other side of it is there there are real problems that businesses are dealing with. One of them is labour shortages. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you think of the two twin pressures that are most prominent in businesses' mind at the moment, they're sort of, you know, the two Ps, prices and people. Can I get the talent I need, retain the talent I have, and what what am I facing in terms of prices? And in a way, Richard, those are the problems you'd rather have. They're problems of too much demand. They're problems of a better and stronger labor market. That doesn't make them any easier to deal with, but we'd far rather be having a problem of tight labor markets than one in which we were dealing with double-digit unemployment rates. And actually, from a societal point of view, if we think of our children or uh, you know, people coming through the education system, you think, well, having a labor market in which there is choice in which businesses have to have the right culture, purpose, the right remuneration, the right, if you can, if you have to compete to get the best people, that's the sort of society we'd want to see. So although challenging for business, we'd rather have that than no demand. I think the, the key thing that's maybe made the labor market a little bit um, uh, more robust than we'd expected, yes, the government support has been won, but we have seen parts of the economy do incredibly well. Seen the property markets grow for for a lot of um, reasons, but we've also seen, you know, whether it's on the pharma side, the ICT side, we can we can see why they have done well. Now, because of that and and that sort of strong hiring picture, that has meant that we have still had job growth when other sectors have been struggling. But of course, Ireland, particularly the Republic of Ireland, relies a lot on a flow of migrant labour coming in, and Ireland's probably about twenty thousand in net inflow down this year than where it would have been expected to be. And almost all of those would have taken up an employment opportunity. So whilst that maybe gives opportunities to others, it is a recognition of one of the other factors that have made it a little bit more difficult to find the labour that firms need. And we're seeing a really interesting and creative response to that labour shortage. Firms looking at whole new ways of working in terms of flexibility or term time or three months on, three months off. It's a real evolution of how firms go about that talent acquisition and retention. As I say, a good thing for a society, but undoubtedly a challenge for businesses as they continue to push for growth. Another big issue is inflation, rising prices. There's a, a global debate going on about the causes of this. Well, you know, not so much the causes, how long it's going to last. Um, what do you think of that? Well, like all good economists, I'll try to play up any forecasts I got right and pass over any I did not. And certainly inflation's been one, even when we have spoken before, that I've been a little bit concerned that we're... We had a slight complacent attitude to that inflation will and uh, will remain sort of permanently low and that this period we've had is simply a reflection of a spike in fuel prices because of the, uh, the the falls that we saw during the height of the pandemic. And I would challenge that a little bit. In the report, we take a look at some of the patterns that have been driving low inflation. And essentially, without uh, going into a long lecture on inflation, we've lived in a world in which three main factors keep inflation very low. You've effectively global competition. You've effectively got in a free or a, a, an endless supply of labor. And technology is constantly making things cheaper. Now, whilst technology is still making that progress, 
it isn't as easy to find labor from anywhere in the world today. And also in terms of global competition, there have been some trade disruptions, the costs that we've seen rising from disrupted shipping relating to the pandemic. We've seen a lot of firms now talking about the fact that they can't have all of their supplies of computer chips or vaccines or whatever it might be, food, energy, in one location. We're used to talking about economies wanting to be food and energy secure, but we're adding new categories to that now, health secure, data secure. There's a breaking up of those supply chains and the idea of constantly being able to find a cheaper location to produce goods and import them is probably, in my view, coming towards its end. We're looking at better standards around you know, workers' conditions or around environmental issues. So those whole, when you start bringing in the shipping, you start bringing in the labor conditions point, that changes that absolute desire for the cheapest possible imports we can find. So that change structurally, I think, suggests that inflation could stick with us just a little bit longer. And then, of course, the other big factor in inflation is um, pay. And again, we've lived in a world where we're all price takers in the economic parlance. We can't really push up wages because somebody will outcompete us. But now there is a desire and an actual evidence of wages beginning to tick up partly because of those labour supply issues and partly because of, for example, thinking of frontline public services, a real desire to find some um, remuneration reward for what's been a very difficult journey. And now with inflation up the 5% range, we're seeing firms having to think about keeping up with that. And that in itself then builds in future pressure on prices because firms begin to believe that consumers have a bit more money. So well, the, the the argument would be then, Richard, that some of the factors that have driven it down uh, maybe don't apply in quite the same way and firms should be factoring in in their planning the possibility of elevated prices for a little bit longer. Well, if there are elevated prices for a little bit longer, then the European Central Bank may well have called it wrong because uh, the United States, the UK, they've sort of already priced in an assumption that there will be a bit of a rise in interest rates. The ECB is sticking to its line that they won't be putting up interest rates in 2022. Do you think they could be forced out of that position by circumstances? I think that's very possible. I think it's unlikely that we would see a situation in which the US and the UK had higher interest rates and the ECB, if it was dealing with inflation, as I expect it will be, was to simply not follow suit. I think that would be unusual. It would also lead to some currency movements as well. But I don't think that necessarily means that it's a very difficult um, uh, sort of timing point as to when you start to make that indication. And if you're really trying to make sure the economy's got enough demand and people feel confident to spend, the message they've been sending is that 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 those will not come until we're sure there's genuine overheating in the economy is a very reasonable thing to do. The evidence of a really tight economy is much stronger in the US and that's why tonally they have changed. So being a little bit later to that change in, in direction won't really be problematic and I wouldn't criticise them for not doing so. But I think the economic realities will mean that. And again, I'd be advising our clients to scenario plan for, I mean, if you look at some of the official forecasts globally, they don't imagine interest rate rises to 2025 or the end of 2024 in Europe. I think they'll be before that. I don't think the ECB will get too far out of step with the US and UK rates. Well, closer to home and the island of Ireland, Brexit has been such a huge, uh, dominated the news for so long. More recently, there's an interesting 
kind of a divergence in publicity. North of the border, Neil, it's been all about the protocol and access to goods for consumers on supermarket shelves and medicines and all of those aspects of it. South of the border, it's kind of gone off the boil. And is there a sense in which maybe some businesses are beginning to say, well, that, that wasn't so bad and, and maybe it hasn't gone away and there, there's still some pain to come? There are certainly still some challenges out there, but like a lot of things, once firms know the rules of the game or the conditions, they are tremendously adaptable, whether that's in shifting how they get goods to the market that they need or complying with the new paperwork requirements. Now, there are still some challenges to come. I mean, the UK is still not applying some of the the paperwork requirements that that it will do in time if the protocol stays in place. So there is still a lot of political tension, but certainly, I mean, you would never say something that we've lived through in the pandemic has been helpful, but what it has done is made it much more difficult to disentangle what might be related to Brexit effects in the data from what's happening in the wider pandemic-influenced economy. And that's made it much more difficult to have any precision over has this had a material and significant economic impact, plus or minus, in any economy. It certainly has fallen away a little bit from the conversations we would have in boardrooms as a topical issue. It's way down behind prices and talent, certainly. But we can see in the trade data, a pickup in the north-south trade flows, uh, reflecting that potential ease of, of access that, that's long been trumpeted. And that's good although the percentage figures are very high but the actual levels are still a little bit low so that reflects some of that shifting in pattern of how people are getting goods into roi from from gb for example so i don't think that the journey is finished but certainly over the last two or three months the mood music even around the protocol or what we might expect has gone a little bit quieter and this period of firms getting used to what has to be completed has certainly taken a little bit of the sting out of just how difficult that it might be so it's still on the risk radar radar if you like but it's certainly moved out of the sort of um, uh, top spots if you like and for the Northern Ireland economy, Neil, if you strip out the, the mechanics of the protocol and the issues around checks and you get into the wider picture of, you know, this in theory has the potential to give Northern Ireland the best of both worlds, you know, full access to the EU single market, full access to uh, the, the GB market. Do you think that is possible? Do you think that's a fair assessment of it? And, and if it is possible, what might it take to make the most of that opportunity? It's certainly possible. It's hard to look at the the protocol and not think you could imagine ways in which it would be attractive. And and certainly even from an investment point of view, I mean, the the queries and the, the order book for inward investment has not dried up by any means. In fact, there's a curiosity as to what that might look like. But there are still challenges to make that a reality. For, for number one, you need to have some certainty that it will last if it's going to stay in, in its particular guise. And again, that obviously not certain with the way that it's set up. And you also have to be sure that, um, as you mentioned, it's in theory it provides. Will that actually be practically the case? We're certainly seeing a curiosity from investors around Northern Ireland that's encouraging. We see a lot of sectors for whom the Brexit issue is, is less central and their key issue is where can I find talent anywhere in the world? They're used to dealing across trade borders. So again, that's not a huge disincentive to them. So there is certainly the potential, 
But I think to answer the question, what do you have to be willing to do? And this can be challenging politically. We have to recognise every place is unique and does have its own strengths, weaknesses and particular way to sell itself. And being able to embrace and be, be bold about what that unique offer is requires a little bit of courage. But that's certainly the potential is there to say, look, this particular market has some nuances that may sit very strongly for your particular interest giving, given the markets. If nothing else, Richard, the most important thing in inward investment conversations is to get the second meeting, get onto the short list of places that people will inquire about. And if Northern Ireland's genuine strengths in quality of life, cost of housing, um, public service provision, if those can, can come to play, they only can come to play if you're in the second meeting. And even if the protocol just provides the curiosity to say, well, I've heard there may be some advantages, tell me more. Once you can get the invitation to tell you more, there's a story to be told. So I think there are real potentials there, but it would be it would be wrong to say we don't still have some um, some uh, uh, barriers or, or poles to navigate around yet to get to that point. Well, talking about inward investment, Looking south of the border, the Republic of Ireland, one of the big issues that the government had to navigate was the international changes to corporation tax and the minimum effective rate of 15%. The jury is kind of still out because people reckon that uh, it will you know, affect in a negative way, perhaps, uh, the, the, the Exchequer's corporation tax rate. But the latest figures, certainly no sign of that at all. Corporation tax take is up 25-26% above what was forecast. Yes, and our, 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 you know, my own view looking at the data is that it, it won't be a huge disincentive, the, the, the 2% percentage point rise. I mean, still compared to where the UK is going to go to, to 25, it's actually an, an improvement in relative position. So from that sense, um, although yes, taking away some of that advantage vis-a-vis, um, say, uh, the likes of Germany or France against the UK, another English-speaking market to whom it would be compete or with whom it would be competing, it's actually a competitive improvement by 2025. So I don't think that that, now the movement of where profits will be declared, that, that that's still, you know, profits more closely tied to where the market for sale is. I think that part of the change in the legislation may be a little bit more challenging in the figures. We'll not see that for a while. But in terms of diminishing Ireland's attractiveness as an FDI location, I don't think that's the case. I think the greater challenge for Ireland is the one that, you know, we see the figures published that Ireland is set for you know national household wealth to reach a trillion euros next year. And half of that's on extra savings, but half of that increase in recent years is on property prices. And although we don't think they're set to continue to grow at this double digit rate, that is a little warning sign. You know, Ireland had some difficulties before in terms of its cost competitiveness, um, you know, availability of housing, of getting you know people into schools and hospital care if you're new to the economy. And we've talked already about the need for drawing in that labour to help the economy grow. That actually, for me, is the bigger challenge to Ireland's um, you know competitive but competitiveness issues would be my number one concern rather than that small increase. It shows Ireland is still at the lowest you know, acceptable rate of the global markets in which you can invest in comfortably without having any worry from your shareholders or stakeholders that you're in an economy that has quote unquote some question marks about tax policy. So globally compliant, but still at the lowest level you could find in any of those markets. I don't think it's as big a worry as, for example, the potential escalation of prices that could make Ireland just creeping back into that 
too expensive category. I think that's where I would have most of my attention on ensuring the FDI flow continues. If you look at the performance of the Irish economy throughout this, I was looking at some of the numbers, Neil, and it is kind of extraordinary. We had, you know, exchequer figures out there. Uh, We're in the second year of a massive global pandemic. The exchequer deficit is running at just under uh, 5 billion euro on a 12-month rolling average. If you actually look at the year to date, to November, I read somewhere that it was running at about 1.5 billion euro, which is unbelievably low relative to the performance of the economy. It's it's truly remarkable. And when we look at the labour market, I mean, there are some concerns in the data, but if we look at record vacancy levels, if we look at the wage information, and if we look at the job count, that essentially says the labour market is back to where it was um, before the pandemic hit, albeit with some levels of people recording that they're in employment but not actually present for work. So there's a few quirks there, but essentially we're, we're way ahead of the job numbers we would have expected. Now, we've talked before that Ireland does have some unique structural factors that mean if you're going to go through a crisis of the nature that we've gone through, a pandemic and a health crisis, if you're going to have exports in any sectors, having pharma, ICT and agri-food as three of your big sectors would be much more preferable than, let's say, car manufacturer, aerospace, heavy machinery, things that we can think of in neighbouring economies. So, so we got unique- lucky. We, we got lucky there, Neil. There was a little bit, yes. There was a bit of, if you're going to set up a structure and draw an economy best suited, that would be one. But but that doesn't take away from the fact that you've still got to get the money in, deploy it. We've had pop schemes, we've had wage subsidy, we've had other incentives. You know, the swift scale and swiftness of policy response has been something to commend. We've looked back, and I've been critical in the past, in the last crisis, of some of the sluggishness of policy response. We can't really level that criticism here and in this case. So the navigating of it is a a testament to quite a lot of factors, not just on the policy side, a little bit of that structural good fortune, if you will, and certainly that adaptability. And the amount of clients we have spoken to who have said, if you told me I was going to be working in this way or using technology in this way or working remotely or adapting to, they would have said, I need a 10-year rollout or I need to think or put that down the line. That, that's not been the case. We now are looking at delivering public services, delivering professional services in ways that we didn't imagine before. And I think that to take a positive out is, is, is great news. I think the important point we have to remember here, though, is if we need target, we're in a better position to offer it in Ireland, which is great. But also going back to that prices point, if you do find general prices are rising, which they are, we have to think about those who are on the lowest of incomes who were hit most hard in the pandemic or outside of the labour market or whose income isn't linked to those inflationary pressures. There could be a bit of a squeeze there. So expect those social issues to be right up at the top of the policy debate next year alongside housing and health. You raise an interesting point about economic growth here. In the document, you say that, you know, we have to look at the fact that maybe not all growth is equal. And you talk about the importance of purposeful growth. What do you mean by that? Well, it's an interesting concept that's coming out in a lot of conversations that we're having as a firm and we're having with our clients as to what sort of growth, the old metrics of, you know, in this sort of 
profit and loss account and how much are our revenues up. They're still in the mix, but there are other things coming in now. Is this growth um, sustainable? What's our planetary impact of, of making this growth trajectory or growth step or growth journey? What does it mean from a social point of view? So this combination, corporates are dealing with this new sort of ESG reporting, environmental social governance. Firms are beginning to look at it that way. Governments are certainly doing that in terms of well-being frameworks or looking at a broader church. And if we're going to be very controversial for a moment, it raises a really interesting debate about just how much, if you think about how we normally, and economists do this certainly, think about what growth looks like. It's almost always we will attract more people, build more housing, develop the economy further and become wealthier. And that's probably still close enough to what most economic strategies around the world are. But we're beginning to see that being caveated or broadened to say, well, maybe only if we can do that without taking more resources out than we need, than we're doing at the moment. Or maybe only if we can do that by tackling some of the social challenges or difficulties that we have. So I think that purposeful growth is really a concept around imagining what it would be like if we thought, well, what sort of society do we want? One with high quality public services, with good air quality, with a good planetary and sustainability agenda, with jobs, you know, opportunities open to, to all. I think it's that, I suppose in the old world, I was used to, you know, the economics people worried about the GDP and the growth. And then there were sociologists worrying elsewhere and there were policymakers for, you know, you know on the green and the environmental side. It's almost like saying, well, we're putting them all around the table and we're saying that the growth has to hit a lot of boxes now. It cannot just be growth for growth's sake. And I think that's something we're seeing both corporately and in a policy environment. And I think that's a very welcome development where we start to ask ourselves, well, what sort of future do we want? And do we need one in which we have very rapid growth? Yes, undoubtedly, so that we have the tax revenues and resources to do other things. But we're having to make some more considerations about that growth journey, a little bit more nuanced and reflecting what, what citizens and stakeholders are asking for. But can we have it all? Because when it comes to that sustainability debate and not just doing growth for growth's sake, in order to realistically achieve the things we need to achieve on climate change, is it not the case that we all need to consume less? And if we consume less, we manufacture less. And if we manufacture less, we have fewer jobs. And what might be a social or environmental step forward is a financial step backward. Well, I think that the balancing of those different dimensions is um, like a critical challenge of thinking, but may not be as clearly uh, or work out just quite in the way that you imagine there. If you think about some of the transition to new ways of consuming or consuming differently, there's a whole agenda that, you know, we can think of building new, more energy efficient homes, but, but that won't be sufficient. We're going to have to do something with the housing stock we have, and that won't be done without new inventions, new in, in investment, new skills in the economy. Um, people willing to make new investments, businesses making investments in what they do and how they do it. Even that big global question about the willingness to ship goods all over the world, that's opening up opportunities to say, no, I think I'll produce that closer to market. And we're seeing a lot of onshoring and smaller scale and firms looking to have pockets of production around 20 sites rather than just one huge factory. And I think that transition to a different, more nuanced or more balanced future 
creates as much opportunities. But yes, it does present a challenge to say we will have to consume differently, we'll have to think differently, and we'll have to behave differently. But almost always difference and change is a catalyst for growth and opportunity. In this document, Neil, you've taken a snapshot of where we are now. You're looking forward to where you think we're going and where you think we'll be over the next couple of years. What what would you say are the key takeaways for businesses from this? I think the main messages I would provide is that 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 sort of the language of the three P's, if you like. So prices, we, we look like we're going to have price pressure for a while. So a lot of advice there for a business is on cost control, looking at their spending, looking at their supply chain, understanding what they can do to mitigate some of the rising costs that they're having or whether they can push their sale prices up or not. You know, market analysis and, and the like, that's a big area of focus for business. Second, P, um, prices. People very much focused on talent retention, talent attraction, or talent substitution if technology offers that opportunity. We're going to have a real competition for people. So, you know, working with clients to make sure their talent attraction retention strategy is absolutely bang up to date and modern and effective. And then the third one, of course, that planetary concern, that that issue on the horizon isn't on the horizon anymore. It's now on the today to-do list. And so we're now thinking about every investment decision, every acquisition, every spending behavior, decisions about our new office footprints, all of them being put through that lens of how quick can we do this in a sustainable way. And I think that those three P's kind of leave me with the sort of overarching feeling as an economist that without being too philosophical about it, what we can be sure of is tomorrow won't really look like yesterday. It'll probably look like a bit of yesterday, a bit of today, and a lot of something we can't quite imagine. So in that sense, we're having to make some scenario plans for things that we've almost begun to take for granted. You know, we've talked during this session about how good the public finances look relative to what we expected, how strong the labor market is. But even there, we can't be complacent in thinking, well, the government will always have enough money. Inflation will come back down, but no interest rate rises, and I can always find the talent I need. I think if we see any hint of that complacency, that would be where we would, the economic modeling would be sounding alarms to say, actually, take none of those macro fundamentals for granted and make sure your business has thought through what it would do if the pressures on each and all of them perhaps stay elevated as we've seen in the last 24 months. I think the way I think about that though is probably more positive than than, than you might expect when you list those challenges because of what we've seen in the last 20 months. You see the ingenuity, the issues of the Brexit or the pandemic or the labor shortages gives you great hope when we see it in our Entrepreneur of the Year program that actually, as I set out economic challenges, there's somebody listening to this thinking, ah, I have an answer to that. And not only that, I can make a business out of it. So I think the the answer is questions to deal with, yes, but challenge everything. If the, the way that we have succeeded in the last two years at a macro sense is something to be celebrated. We shouldn't take that lightly, but we shouldn't also let that make us think complacently that, well, if we can do that, tomorrow we'll be fine. All growth is hard work. So if things have gone well, enjoy it, but uh, keep one eye over your shoulder and another eye around the corner as to what might be coming. Absolutely. Stay innovative. The world changes fast. The success stories we have around this island are almost all people who have not stood still. They've innovated. They've spotted a new opportunity. They've modernized. They've 
stepped into a niche and a gap. And in fact, one of the things we've been doing a lot with our clients is making sure our leadership teams feel fresh enough for the challenge ahead. When you've been through such a difficult time, there can be a little bit of fatigue. So for those who are able to, it's important to get a little bit of a break over the holiday season or when it's appropriate to do so. You need to be at your very best, constantly innovate and be on the front foot. Well, it's the EY Economic Eye Winter 2021 forecast. Neil Gibson, EY Ireland's Chief Economist, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. And do please keep an eye out. We'll be back soon with another installment of our Economic Eye podcast. Thanks for joining us.